Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Peter as we continue our study in that great letter. I pray that you've been enjoying it as much as I have. Question for you, do you ever get tired or angry or just frustrated about people getting away with wickedness and sin? Do you ever look around and say, why does it seem like no one gets what they're due? A couple of weeks ago in an interview with O.J. Simpson that was actually from 2006, it was just broadcast just a couple of weeks ago, he described an if I did it scenario, a hypothetical, if I did, did it, this is what it would have looked like. Really made people angry. Though acquitted of his crime or of that crime, many people today still believe that he had something to do with it. Even after all these years, even nine years after spending nine years in prison for armed robbery, there are a majority of people, if you were to poll them today, would probably said, yes, he did it. And so anytime you raise that name up, there seems to be just an ire among a majority of people. Or sometimes maybe we just get angry or frustrated with just the pace of justice. Its wheels seem to just turn so slowly that justice seems to not happen. Well, in chapter 2 of chapter Peter, he's been dealing with the second objection of the false teachers. You might remember the first one was, Jesus is not coming, and their objection was, you apostles have just made up that Christ is returning so that you can control people, so you can make them do what you want to do. You, you have no knowledge of that. And again, as we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, we see as they answer that first objection. But now as we come to chapter 2, it's the second objection that there will not be a day of reckoning. We can live life how we want. Jesus is not coming back. There is no day of reckoning. But as we read two weeks ago, Paul or Peter, excuse me, starts this chapter two with a warning about false teachers. Those who proclaim that Christ is not coming to proclaim that you can live life the way that you want. As you can recall in in second Peter chapter one, he's calling them to holiness, to to live a life of godliness, to add to their faith. All those things that we looked at. He predicts the coming of the false teachers, which were already making their presence known among the churches there of the first century. And he warns them to pay attention, to be alert, to be on the lookout for these false teachers. He gave us four simple facts. If you look at your monitor, we'll do this as a matter of view, just to put us back on the same page as it's been a week or so since we went over this. He said that there will always be false teachers among you who will misuse and abuse scripture. So look out for them. He says they'll come in within secretly. They're not from the outside, but they come in secretly hiding their real attentions. And thirdly, their teachings will always wind up denying the sovereignty of God. Maybe sometimes in subtle ways, but in the end, they will deny the sovereignty of God. And fourthly, he had stated that the rebellion against God will always bring judgment. And that's where we stand today. 
Two weeks ago in our study of 2 Peter, we learned three important impacts of false teachers among the churches and among people. The first one is that they are that the, the impact on believers as believers are persuaded by their false teachings and their behaviors to follow them into ungodly living, to, to not pursue holiness as God called them to. The second impact was that on the, the gospel and the witness of the church as, as these false teachers are teaching a gospel that's corrupted by destructive heresies and a testimony of the gospel is corrupted as people are swayed by their sensuality and the church becomes really hypocrites and the world looks on and says if that's the church I don't want anything to do with it and you hear that all the time people love the church they just hate his bride it's kind of like me and you being friends but me not liking your wife doesn't really go well together then thirdly the impact of false teachers is the judgment that leads to destruction this denial that Jesus is Lord means that judgment will be rendered by a holy God who will judge the living and the dead. You and I must realize that. And that justice will be done. They will not get away with their rebellion. And their justice or their destruction is guaranteed. They will not have an advocate who will be able to plead their case before Christ or the Father. And so that's where you and I are. So justice will be done, but yet... We stand here and we wonder, is it? For how long? So with that in mind, as we continue in Peter's second letter, he continues with a word of encouragement and a word of warning. And this morning, I wound up having to split this message up into two by the time I got through with it. And so we're just going to look at the warning this morning. To those who declare that there will not be a final reckoning, that you can live life to the fullest. Do not care. Do not worry about how you live. God promises divine justice. While those that remain faithful in pursuing holiness and godliness, God says, will receive deliverance and protection. Lest anyone think that God is too loving or too merciful to judge the wicked false teachers and their deceived people, Peter gives three powerful illustrations of past divine judgment on the wicked. So with that, I hope you're in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 4. It's there on the screen if you need it, but follow along with me. For God did not spare angels, Peter writes, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, by turning, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. In verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Let us receive it with gladness. Open up our minds and our hearts to read. Lord, let us read with discernment. Let us listen with discernment. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign, keep the distractions at the minimum. 
Lord, let me speak words that are edifying, that are building up. Lord, let us capture what you mean here for us today. As we consider the, the judgment, but yet the deliverance that comes. And Lord, let it just lead us to the person of Christ who holds us in his hand, but yet one day we'll judge. So Father, give us wisdom as we listen. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, as you and I look at evangelical churches and the wide spectrum under its tent today, we witness those who misuse and abuse scripture for their own greedy purposes. We see family members and friends deceived by those who preach and teach a false gospel, leading them not only astray, but also down the path of false assurances of salvation. We notice the churches and pastors that are caving in to the pressures of society in recognizing, affirming, and even promoting lifestyles that are contrary to scriptures. Sadly, churches today have joined with the world who do not see fit to acknowledge God, but as Romans says, but also give approval to those who practice sin. And most likely, each of us pass such churches each week as we come here to worship. It can be frustrating, baffling, and discouraging as we see their parking lots full. It's easy to become angry and wondering, why are they succeeding? Why are they prosperous? Why doesn't God prevent them from reaching people? Why doesn't God strike those churches down? Why doesn't he do what Revelation says and remove their pastors and teachers that are leading people astray? Why does it seem like like the wicked prosper and the righteous struggle? We join with the prophet Jeremiah, who cried out in desperation in Jeremiah 12, as you see in the monitor, where he says, righteous are you, O Lord. And when I complain to you, yet, he says, I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and they produce fruit. You are near in their mouths and far from their hearts. Meaning that they talk about Jesus, they talk about God, but yet... Their heart and their behavior and their teachings shows that they are not. But it's God who's helping them and grow. And so we have to ask, he goes on to plead to the Lord, would would you pull them out like sheep for slaughter? And would you set them apart for the day of slaughter? Now, I don't think our language just goes to that far. But we wonder, why do they seem to grow? Why do they seem to be prosperous? Why is the gospel being watered down? Why is it being lost from one generation to the next? We understand his frustration and his anger. We demand justice as well. Peter understands this, which is why he warned in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. But yet we wonder, where is God's justice? When is their judgment? Why do they continue to, to, to collect uh, those who follow him and disciples? And why do they seem to grow? Well, Jeremiah goes on to, or I'm sorry, the theme of this passage as we go on here is the Lord knows how to. And if I can share anything with you this morning, you and I need to get a picture of God is as a God who is sovereign. A God who is Lord. A God who is involved in the world and in, in, in creation itself. Look with me at verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at there once again. The theme that we see here is that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter wants his original readers, as well as you and I today, to stand firm in the knowledge that God will judge the wicked, but also at the same time, he preserves the godly. It's important for us to remember that nothing is outside of God's control, even the designs of the wicked. And I have to say with you, as, as elders, sometimes that's some of the things that is hard in our mind, that's heavy in our mind. How can we protect our people? Especially if, if the false teachers are here within the church. Can we, can we identify them? Can we mark them out? Do we have the courage and the boldness to do so? But yet in the same way, I understand that as you listen to my preaching, that many times that you're out listening to others, reading other books. And there are many that will tell you what you want to hear. There are many that will make Christianity much easier to follow. I read those same things and I watch their same messages. I see what happens on Facebook and Twitter. I see sometimes many things that you may like or dislike. In the same way, I'll see little things that say, oh boy, I wish, I hope they don't follow that book. And many times I see it, we, we, we put out little memes and little sayings and then I see who said it. And I'm thinking, well, there's a portion of truth there, but yet that person, the, the gospel is lost in their message. And so I'm concerned for our people. I'm concerned for my own heart. For I understand that I too can be fooled. That I too can fall sometimes into false teaching if not careful. We all must. It's with sadness Rob Bell's new movie is coming out. I don't recommend it to anyone. But again, he's giving a, a, a hypocrite. He's asking really for the hypocrisy of the church to come out. But what he's, he's giving is, he's, it's a full uh, uh, leaving of the gospel. But he's a very influential, very powerful voice. Where's God's just, justice? But in this case... God is sovereign in the dispensing of justice. So it's not left up to me. I may cry out, why, why, why? But I have to learn to trust in a sovereign God who's in control. In our passage today, Peter details God's justice in condemnation. As God judges and punishes the wicked, those who rebel against his authority. But yet also God is sovereign in his vindication. As God provides protection and deliverance for the godly. So you and I today, we're going to hear a warning and a little bit of an encouragement. The encouragement is going to come next week. So I, I, this is a two part, so stay with us. Do not get discouraged today. I hope to give you some hope there. But yet we need to see that there's some warning. And the warning is not just for false teachers that are outside, those who pronounce a whole different gospel. It's not for just those who may proclaim to be Christian but have no sense of scripture in their lives. But it's also here for us today. For we may ourselves find ourselves sometimes threading that little balance line of false teaching and false thoughts. I think if we're honest, all of us hold on to some things that are less than gospel, gospel light, myself included. And we all must always go before the mirror of scripture and allow it to inform our hearts and our mind and our thinking. But yet we see vindication as God provides protection and deliverance for the godly. So he is encouraging the godly believers to remain faithful, pursue holiness, pursue godliness, while warning false teachers and their followers, those who profess Christ but are living sinfully, 
of the certainty of final judgment. We must be aware of that. Many times in churches, we soft pedal God's justice, God's judgment on sinners, God's wrath. And I understand that can be difficult. It's not something we love to hear about, but yet it's something that we must understand. For if we truly love people, we want to share with them the whole gospel. So not only is he encouraging godly believers to remain faithful, but he's also giving a warning. Do not follow these men and women into their sinful living. So to illustrate, Paul uses some if and then statements. You know if statements? If you do this, then, then this is what happens. Wait until, you know, if you continue to do this, then your dad is going to give you a spanking. When you, you know, those types of phrases we might have used. If and then to describe God's justice. Today we're going to look mainly at the if statements to show that God's judgment is divine. So I want to give you three examples of God's divine justice that Peter gives us from the ancient world. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to do something here that's going to show your coordination. Keep, keep one finger in 2 Peter, but then what you're going to do is you're going to go to Genesis, first book of the Bible, and turn to Genesis chapter 6 as we look at the rebellious angels of the ancient world. Peter here references this ancient act of rebellion to state that they could not and would not escape God's justice. Looking at 2 Peter chapter 2 and looking at verse 4 once again, Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into judgment. So he gives an if statement. He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's leaving us hanging there. But then he goes here, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> For in this passage, we read of an early event in the history of the world. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply, Moses writes, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to him, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, who these sons of God is, has been debated throughout the history. We will not solve that issue today. We may have three or four opinions as we leave this door, but I think if we come into it with an open mind, we can understand what Peter is trying to share with us. Some maintain that these children of God or these sons of God were the children of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam and Eve that was born after Cain killed Abel. The scripture tells us that when Adam knew his wife Eve, again she bore a son and she called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring for Abel, for Cain killed him. And it says of Seth that Seth also had a son who was born and his name was called Enosh. And this is important. It says at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see then that their worship begins with Seth and his line starting then with Enosh. And from this they gather, those who would believe that this is the godly line of Seth, with that the godly line of Seth became attracted to the daughters of Cain and stopped worshiping God as they would intermarry with him. They would eventually leave that worship. While others believe that the sons of gods were actually angels that became attracted to women 
and left heaven to marry them. So I won't take a poll of which one you believe it is. Uh, it depends where you may set off, what type of Bible you might have, or what you might want to think. But that really doesn't matter from either one, and we'll see why. But here, Peter is following Jewish tradition and identifying them as angels who voluntarily left heaven. Peter here is actually kind of taking a stance on it. And we see this same thought as we look, if we were to look in Jude chapter 6. And Jude and 2 Peter have very much in common. In Jude chapter 6, Jude writes, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in external and internal chains under gloomy darkness, sound familiar? Until the judgment of the great day. So those, par those passages are very parallel. And this comes, this Jewish tradition, comes from a non-biblical book named First Enoch. Now, before we get into too much controversy, the first Enoch is not a portion of scripture, nor should it be. However, it, it did inform Jewish tradition. And in it, they believed that there were some things that were true. So what we find is when the scripture uses or quotes books or authors from, from other non-biblical sources, we're not saying that then those then become trusted sources. What we say is we can trust them for what the Holy Spirit used them for. But if you were to read the book of 1st Enoch, it states this. And it came to pass that when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Well, the book of Enoch goes on to state that 200 angels made that pact and that they were punished for their abandonment of serving God. In either case, whether it's the whether case you might believe, the sin is the same, apostasy due to sensual, uh, sensual passion and lustful hearts. Whether it's the lion of Seth or whether it's the children of their angels, apostasy is still the sin that happens. Apostasy refers to having a knowledge and maybe even a taste of the greatness and goodness of God, but then forsaking a previous prof profession of submission to pursue evil once again. And so what Peter is showing here, here's a, here's a sin of apostasy. Though they rebelled against God, he has placed them in hell for their troubles or for their rebellion. But the word Peter uses is not the usual Hebrew word for hell that you and I understand and recognize. But the Greek word, tart uh, I'm going to get it wrong, so just you can tell me later, uh, tar Tartarus. Pastor John MacArthur writes that Peter borrows this Greek mythology word for hell. The Greeks taught that this place was a place that was actually lower than Hades and it was reserved for the most wicked of human beings, gods and demons. The Jews eventually came to use this term to describe the place where fallen angels were sent. It defined for them the lowest part of hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. So what we see is Peter says, listen, if these angels or if these, well, he's saying angels, so I'm just going to say, if these angels left heaven, rebelled against God, apostatized, they still found judgment in the lowest place of hell. And there they are clept, kept in chains in gloomy darkness. They did not escape. The second example he's going to give us there is, is in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, if you're still in Genesis. That of the rebellious human race. There he says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every attention of his thought of his heart was continually 
evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart in verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verse nine, he goes, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And he walked with God and he had three sons and we see their names there. But in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In this familiar story, you and I are introduced to Noah and his family. Eight people in total who are living in the midst of a world that is incredibly wicked and rebellious towards God. Several chapters after writing of Seth and that the people begin to call upon the name of the Lord, we read that apostasy has now ran rapid and that only Noah and his family remain faithful. What a sad commentary on the heart of man. Created in order that we might admire God as the supreme object of our admiration, man quickly abandons their maker to pursue their own lustful, wicked passions. Now looking back at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter references them when he says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. As you and I know, the world is destroyed by a worldwide flood. While Noah and his family are protected in the ark. It took Noah 120 years to build that ark. And Peter informs us something that we don't see in the Old Testament. And that's that Noah preached to the wicked. Most likely, I would assume that his message is the same as Jonah's was to Nineveh. That it was the same message of the prophets to the kings of Israel. And that it was the same message of John the Baptist to the people in the wilderness. It was the same as Jesus' message to the crowds that were following him. It was the same message of the Paul, Peter, Paul, and the rest of the apostles as they called to the Jews and the Gentiles both to repent. As a righteous man who knew and loved God, I would safely assume it was Noah's desire to see his neighbors, his friends, and his families to repent of their wickedness. To turn back towards God and escape his wrath and punishment. However, you and I know that they did not. And that the whole world was destroyed because of the apostasy of their move into wickedness. Then he gives us one more, the third one. And that's the rebellious cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2. As we look at verse 6, Peter writes again, If, if by turning the cities in Samara, Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the godly. Now here's scripture again, through the Holy Spirit saying, These people are an example Peter now reminds his readers of the judgment of the city of Sodom and the rescue of Lot in Genesis chapter 18. Turn there if you would, Genesis chapter 18. We'll just look at a few verses there. Look at it, verses 20 and 21. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, we see the Lord speaking to Abraham, saying this, 
Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to, whether, go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. There then begins a negotiation between Abraham and the Lord in which Abraham pleads for mercy for the city because there may be some righteous people that are still living there, mainly probably thinking of his nephew Lot and his family. Eventually the Lord promises, as you know, not to destroy the cities if he finds at least 10 people in the city of Sodom. Well, you and I know the story that he does not. Not only does he not find 10 righteous people, but his angels are threatened as men of the city demand to have sex with them. Finding refuge at the house of Lot, Abraham's nephew, they persuade them to come safely with them. Now turn Genesis chapter 19. And in verse 12, we read that the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them to this place, speaking of his home. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to be to his son-in-laws to be what? Jesting, making fun, making a joke. The lot would take three of his family members with him. His son-in-laws did not take him seriously. And going back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Peter tells us that God rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. As the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He's describing here many of us today. When we live in a world, in a society, in a culture that seems to become less Christ-like, less gospel-friendly than it ever has before. Where things are being codified into law that, that really set us as a stark difference. And like Lot, we're also asking for deliverance. Of course, Lot's wife reluctantly left only to turn into a pillar of salt when she looked back. His daughters, mourning the death of their husbands, trick Lot into sleeping with him by getting him drunk so that they could have children. His choice to take the good land back in Genesis that looked well watered and prospered wound up costing him way too much. You and I have to recognize that. That a life of sin will cost you way too much. More than you really want to pay. More than you're ever able to pay. Even today, his name is used as a pejorative for bad luck. You and I do it when we comment, look, it's his lot in life. Fill in the blank. It's usually mean bad luck, a bad situation. It's his lot in life. Now, if we're reflecting on these events, using these as examples to his original readers there in first century Asia, to these churches, he recognizes, I know many of you are struggling Remember, 1 Peter was about them suffering from outside influences. And he was telling them, you're going to have to endure suffering. But let your conduct be in that suffering. As you endure suffering, let it be a good uh, example to others that they may see your good works and that they may glorify God. So now here in 2 Peter, he says, not only will you endure suffering from outside, 
But now you're going to endure persecution from inside as those that are within are trying to derail you from following the word of God. He's warning him here. And he's looking, he says, look at these three ancient world examples. I need to warn you that God will bring judgment on those who deny and rebel against authority. And so as these readers are reading this, these original, you can imagine they, that, that, that those, those oral traditions were pretty strong. They knew these stories much like you and I do today. And no one wants to be in the same breath as Sodom and Gomorrah or those rebellious angels or in Noah and the, the rest of the world. We understand that. Peter notes that all three of these events had two sins in common. Sensuality and a rebellion against the authority of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 10. When he talks about judgment. And he says judgment especially to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. And that's what you have with these false teachers. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to go through this as we get past Easter. But what we're seeing here, is he's describing these false teachers as having behavior that is anti-Christ. They're indulging in their passions. They were filled with adultery. They were filled with immorality. That was the, the problem that wasn't so much their teaching, though they did have destructive heresies. But their destructive heresy was you could live any way that you want and you will not face a reckoning. God will not judge you. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we'll look at this a little bit more in detail. But he says, look at life goes on. People are born, they live, and, and they die. So just enjoy life as you would. Well, that's the call today. If it feels good, do it. It's your body. It's your life. It's your choice. Live as if there is no tomorrow. Live as if there's no God and there's no judgment. And yes, we do that. And to be honest, we as a church and believers, many times we are seduced by that. For we see that every day is almost like today. We see people living like that and prospering. And you have to ask, well, why should I sacrifice anything? Why should I pick up my cross? Why should I deny myself these pleasures? Didn't Paul say all things are lawful? And he did. They were familiar with Paul's teaching, but yet they twisted for their own benefit. And Peter here is warning those that he loves and says, my friends, there is a judgment day. Be careful, be warned, be on the lookout. Do not follow them into their lifestyle. They may be living their lives as if there's no judgment. But scripture warns us that all things will be brought into account, even the secret things. Let me share with you three things quickly, some observations about God's judgment. When it comes to the rebellious angels, their punishment was not immediate. They were not punished when they left heaven, but they were seen to allow to intermingle with humanity, bear children, and so on. However, at some point, God appointed them to a time of temporary judgment where they are restrained from continued sin. The chains there, as you see in 2 Peter, are most likely metaphorical, not literal. But one day, and this is what Peter is saying, one day they will face God for final judgment. This is the place that we can see when Jesus is, 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 is preaching and teaching and, the, and those, uh, the, the, the demons would rather go into a, a herd of pigs because they don't want to go into this place where these other angels are. 
Their rebellion against the sovereignty of God infected, though, the entire world as they led them to follow in their wickedness. With the judgment against the wickedness of the world in Noah's case, again, judgment is not immediate. God sent Noah to preach repentance for 120 years. However, no one responded. What a sad commentary. We also see that God's judgment is also universal and final. There was no last plea when the raindrops began to fall and the doors of the ark began to shut. With Sodom and Gomorrah, their judgment is severe and final with no time giving to repent, though God was willing to negotiate while searching for the godly who might live there. Their judgment, now look at this, their judgment is, is even a little bit more different here. Their judgment included complete destruction. It says they were turned to ashes to extinction. Jewish writings state that even after Jesus' time, some 3,000 years after the events in Genesis, after the destruction of Sodom, that the area was still full of ashes and that there was still the smell of burnt. Josephus, who wrote 30 years after, or 40 years after Jesus' death, wrote that you could still walk in that area and see the burnt out markings of the city. But they've also become an example, even in our secular history and culture, as a city of wickedness and judgment. You know, here we see that God's judgment can come in two phases. And this is where you and I need to take encouragement, but also some, 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 some warning here as well. Is that judgment comes in two phases. Both immediate, there are times when God's justice comes down quickly, but then there's sometimes that that judgment is reserved for a future. Never think that just because the wicked is getting away with their sin, that God is absent. And let me say the same thing, Christian believer. We ourselves are full of hypocrisy and sin. Let us never think that just because we think that we have the facts of the gospel right, that we are living godly and pursuing holiness as he called us to. Many times we feel that we are getting away with living a lifestyle that God has not called us to, that God would be ashamed of. And we think, well, since God has not punished me, then I must be okay. But do not be deceived. What does scripture say? God is not what? Mocked. So we must take this account. Do not feel that you're getting away with sin. Of course, that is where you and I struggle. Is waiting for God's justice. And we want it today. We want it now. I'd like for you to turn real quickly to Romans chapter 2. As we come to the near the end here of the message. I want to give you just one portion of scripture. Romans chapter 2. Verse 2, this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us insight into part of God's plan when it comes to his divine justice. In verse 2 of Romans 2, Paul writes, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You say, what do you mean practice such things? Well, go back to chapter 1, look at verse 27. He says, men likewise give up a, a natural, or let's see, verse 26 or 27. Men likewise give up natural relations with women. We're consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Uh, it goes on to verse 28. They um, do not see fit to acknowledge God. God gives them up. 
Then verse 29, they were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips to people. We're not just talking about the worst. This is in the church today. This is in our own lives. And you and I need to recognize that in many ways he describes us. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Those who practice such things. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you will not escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the kindness of God and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to bring them to repentance? Many times God's justice is not immediate because he's desiring to bring them back to him. He's desiring to reconcile them to himself. And you and I are ministers of that reconciliation. During this lull in justice, you and I are be about our Father's work, the Great Commission, and loving those. But because of your hard and impotent hearts, in verse 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. We need to recognize that our rebellion against God may not be immediate, but we're storing up that wrath. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who are patient and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's where we find our hope. But in verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey right unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You are not, and I are not to be discouraged that the wicked prosper. You and I must understand that many times that judgment may not be immediate, but yet that's even for our own benefit, that God may bring us to repentance, even in our own sin. But also that earthly punishment points to the final judgment. When God does punish, when justice is done, it points to the final judgment. Even the angels who are, who are then put away into hell, he says one day they will be judged and put into the lake of fire, just as Satan will. Then also that God gives us time to repent and he holds back his judgment. Hence why I ask the question, why not today? And Christian, I would say the same thing. Even if you know Christ, why not today commit to pursuing holiness and godliness? Do not fall into the same trap of thinking that there will be no justice, that God will not judge you for your works. There's a warning for us today. Do not be seduced into following others into sin. You and I are called to be faithful into pursuing holiness and godliness as children of God. That's part one. Next week, I want to share with you how God, if he can judge, if he can bring divine justice, he also can preserve and protect the godly. And that's where you and I stand today. And so we need to understand how that works. But I would challenge you, the message that you and I need to give to our loved ones, to those that we care about, not is that we need to do this in, in a winsome way. It's not that they face the wrath of God in judgment and fiery brimstone, but that God loves them and he's calling them to his own. And we need to use that in such a way that we may bring those that have rebelled against God, those that have apostatized, to please come to God while there's still time. Question number 28 says, what happens after death to those who are not united by Christ in faith. We read this earlier. The answer was at the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful 
but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. As Paul says, we are all guilty. He's appointed unto man once to die, then after this, the judgment. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. You and I must recognize this. You and I must believe this. It is scriptural. And we must share this with others so they too may come to the Father. I'm going to ask with their head bowed and eyes closed as the worship team comes up. I want to take a moment to pause and to consider what has been spoken from God's word. I'm sure there's things you may disagree. There may be things in which I've misspoke, may need to clarify. But again, let's consider what scripture says. And I'm going to take a moment just to pray. And pray and respond to the Holy Spirit. Spirit, what would you want me to say, to do, to live from this message? You see, God wants you to understand that one day there will be a day of reckoning where every person will give account of his life. God wants you to believe that the sovereign Lord will dispense justice in his timing. And God wants you to desire to please him above all things and to view him as the supreme object of admiration. And God wants you to be faithful to his word, to stand firm in the faith, and to share the ministry of reconciliation to those that have rebelled against his rule. Would you this morning pray to do so? You are such a good God. And I stand guilty as, as those rebellious angels, as that wicked world, and as Sodom and Gomorrah, for I too have rebelled against you in so many ways. In my actions, in my heart, in my thoughts, my words and deeds. Father, I thank you for your son who came to pay that penalty for us. And I pray if there's any here that do not know you as Savior, that, Father, they would call upon you today, that they would recognize that they do not have to pay that penalty of sin, but you've called in repentance to turn from their faith and to trust in Christ's work. Father, but I pray as mainly a group of Christians today come to submit to ourselves and to call you Lord, to worship you, that you would help us to love others to love you, to Father, to be the work of, a, of, a, of an evangelist, to be an ambassador for Christ, that we may warn and point others towards you. Let us pursue godliness and holiness with all that within us. Lord, as we are on the alert, as we're on the lookout for our own lives, Lord, that we are following you. Make us sufficient. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.